This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Welcome Tony and Peggy back tonight. So, is there a place, and this literally is just open-ended, but is there a place you would want to start? Like, you thought today, man, I wish I would have got this said, and you can start there and prime the pump, or are you totally carp? No, I, I, I want to go where they want to take us. Okay. Do you guys want to take them anywhere? Yeah. You, if they don't, you don't ask good questions, this is going to be a bad <laughs> It's going to be bad. So it's up to you to make me and Peggy look interesting. I have all kinds of questions, but that's not fair. I've got to spend time with uh, Tony and Peggy. So let's just throw it out. There's a million places we could start. Somebody needs to be froggy. You have a question? Please don't make us wait. Would you raise your hand if you have a question? Yay, we've got a taker already. Jeff, hand her the mic. And we're going to give you a microphone. People don't like talking into a mic, but it's a lot easier. So, What happened to Agnes? Okay. Uh, I don't know. How many were not here this morning? Okay, well, that's enough, so I'd better tell the story. Okay, thank you. Uh, it's been quite a while, but uh, several years ago, I, I was invited to speak in Honolulu, Hawaii, and I, uh, if you come from the East Coast, you wake up like at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm hungry, and I uh, went looking for something to eat. I got dressed, went out, looked around. Everything's closed up, even in Honolulu which is a bustling city. Up a side street, I found this greasy spoon. So I go in, and I sit down on the stool. No, no, no booths in the place, just these stools. And um, uh, it was greasy, dirty. I, I didn't touch anything. It was just so... This big round guy came out. I mean, really fat. And he had this greasy apron. And uh, he looked at me, and he said, What do you want? I said a cup of coffee and a donut. So he poured the coffee, and then he did this. I still remember it. And he picked up the donut. I hate that. So there I am, you know, 3.30 in the morning, uh, you know, drinking my coffee, eating this dirty donut, and into the place come about eight or nine prostitutes. And they sit on either side of me, and they're boisterous, they're loud, and the one next to me, Says to, to her friend, uh, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. And her friend said, so what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday? Do you want me to bring a cake? We're going to have a party? Is that? First woman says, look, don't rag on me. I, I, I'm just telling you it's my birthday. I don't expect anything. I, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. So that did it. I waited until they left. And... Uh, then I called Harry over and I said, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah. I said, the one next to me. He said, Agnes. He said, yeah, yeah, she comes. I said, tomorrow's her birthday. And I heard her say she's never had a birthday party in her whole life. What do you say we decorate the place and we throw a party for her here in the diner tomorrow night? He said, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. He called his wife out of the back room. Jan, come out here. I want you to... Meet this guy. He wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. 
She comes out and she says, a birthday party for Agnes. Oh, that's lovely. She said, look, mister, you wouldn't understand this because of, you know, what she does. And, but she's one of the good people of this town, one of the kind people of this town. And uh, nobody ever does for her, and she's always doing for other people. This is a good thing. I said, can I, I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a birthday cake. Harry says, oh, no, the cake's my thing. I thought, oh, geez, you know, I thought, here we go. I got there the next morning, about 2.30. I had bought streamers at Kmart and strung them across the place. I, uh, I had bought some poster board, and with a magic marker, I made a sign that said, Happy Birthday, Agnes. Put it on the mirror behind the counter. I, and Jan had gotten the word out on the street so that about 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in this place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. 3.30 in the morning, in comes Agnes and her friends. And we all yell, happy birthday, and start singing to her. She's stunned. They steady her. They get her over, sit her down on a stool. When Harry brings out the cake with the candles, she loses it and starts to cry. He just... Stands there for a while and just says, okay, okay, Agnes, knock it off, knock it off, blow out the candles. She tried to blow out the candles, but she couldn't do it. So he blew out the candles. And then he gave her the knife and said, now cut the cake. Come on, cut the cake. She sat there for a long moment. And then she looked at me and said, mister, is it okay if I don't cut the cake? I said, it's your cake. She said, what I'd like to do is take the cake home and show it to my mother. Can I, can I do that? I said, it's your cake. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake home and show it to my mother. And, and then I promise I'll bring it right back. She stood up. She picked up the cake like it was the Holy Grail, pushed through the crowd, out the door. And as the door swung slowly shut, there was stunned silence. I didn't know what to say. Finally, I said, well, what do you say we pray? Which is weird looking back on it now. But it was the right thing to do. And I prayed that God would deliver Agnes from what dirty, rotten men had done to her. You know how these things start. Girl gets messed over by some guy, some uncle, somebody in the family, some neighbor at the age of 12 or 13. Her self-image is destroyed. She goes downhill from there. And I prayed that God would make her new again, would restore her. And when I finished the prayer, Harry leaned over the counter and said, Hey, Camp Polo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you preach in? And I said to him, I, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. I thought that was so clever until he came back with this line. No, you don't. No, you don't, he said. I would join a church like that. And I said this morning, wouldn't we all 
Wouldn't we all love to belong to a church that threw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? And that's the kind of church Jesus came to create. If you read the New Testament, he was always throwing parties for the wrong people. How many times did they say, if he was a man of God, he wouldn't be feasting, he wouldn't be partying with those uh, harlots and those tax collectors and those sinners. He was always partying, and he was always partying with the wrong people. The rest of the story goes a little like this, and it hasn't ended yet. Uh, it was about it was about five or six months later. I was to lecture at Linfield College in in Oregon, and I came out on the platform for the lecture, and lo and behold, the place was decorated. There were balloons hanging from the ceilings. There were uh, ribbons, and and I. I it was my, my birthday. It was the 25th of February. It was my birthday. And the place was, the whole platform was decorated. And when I went up to the rostrum, there was this cardboard sign that said, Happy birthday, Tony, your friend from Honolulu. She had called my office, found out where I would be, uh, found out my birthday, called the school, had some students. Uh, spend some money, she reimbursed them to do all of this. I haven't seen her since, but I did go back to the place where she worked, and I found that two things were true. First, she was out of, quote-unquote, the life. She wasn't a prostitute anymore. As a matter of fact, she was working at the restaurant. And the second thing that would happen was that the guy who, uh, Harry, it turned out to be a Christian guy, and he's worked hard to make that diner into a place where people can come and talk, and he's become a kind of amateur counselor, pastoral counselor. It's a kind of a beautiful thing, and uh, I don't know where the story ends, but that's about where it is, and it's been that way for about six years now, and that's the last I've heard of Agnes, that um, she's working and, and uh, in a place where uh, she's not become a Christian, I have to say that, but a lot of good things have happened to her since we were together. So that's a long answer to a very short question. Does somebody have another question for Peggy or for me? Gee, don't come all at once. I can't handle them all at once. You can ask me about stuff that I didn't talk about. That's fair enough. Yes. Could you tell us your name first? Okay, yeah, and, and I, I know who you are. You. I know who you are. I want to know what your secret is to a long, healthy, happy marriage, working together and your personal life together. How do you balance that? Okay, Peggy, you want to answer the question of how we've stayed together all these many years? Well, Tenny and I have been married for 56 years, and often somebody a lot younger than I am asks how long we've been married and I'm very fond of saying uh, 54 happy years. When, then he perks up his ears and says we've been married 56 years. And that's not to say that we had two perfectly horrible years. It's just kind of to say that in every year, maybe every month, maybe every week, maybe every day, there's some things, the married people are laughing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's some things that aren't... Uh, absolutely perfect and I think it's neat if young people know that before they sign up
because uh, you wait and you get through some things and sometimes you're better on the other side. But as far as how, what we've done, I've always appreciated that uh, even though I married a pastor and I was a pastor's wife from the start and I was only 20 years old, my husband always thought it important for me to define my church work and my relationship to God which really uh, wasn't the real thing till quite a long time into our marriage. I thought it was because when you don't know the real thing, you can think that something that's sort of okay is the real thing. But Tony has never made me feel that I had to be anything or say anything to, uh, to please him other than being nice to him because I love him. And I remember one time a friend of ours came over who was a pastor and was trying to uh, move to another church. And he told Tony that the pulpit committee had come and he felt certain everything was going well. And then his wife served brownies and they were hard as rocks. And he was sure that that was why it had not, the discussion had not continued well and he wasn't called to the church. And after they left, I remember Tony saying, the day my career depends on your brownies, that'll be the day. <laughs> what do you want to say? Well, I, yeah, uh, uh, you got to get the picture, go back a long time. I mean, I'm, I'm 70, I'm 79 now, and I want you to go all the way back to when I was 23, and I was the pastor of this church, which for a 23-year-old kid was a pretty good-sized church. It was about 350, 400 showing up on Sunday. And um, Peggy, the new wife of the pastor, uh, goes to the adult Sunday school class and gets off to a great start. This pastor was going around asking people. It wasn't the pastor. It was a very fundamental old man in the church. Went around and asked everybody a simple question. If you knew Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, what would you do today? And it was wonderful. I'd witnessed to my neighbor. I've never shared the gospel. Somebody else said I'd be reconciled to my Aunt Tessie. Um, we haven't token, spoken for years. If I knew Christ was going to come back again, I'd. I'd get right with her. And it went on like this until they got to the pastor's wife. And Peggy said to this very, very austere, evangelical, solidly serious group of elderly people, well, if I was absolutely sure Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, I'd take my credit cards, go down and buy everything I ever wanted, see? <laughs> and, and, and nobody ever laughed. Nobody laughed, you know? Um, She's been, she's been a lot of fun over the years. And I, I never, I could tell you story after story. Just one more story will tell you why we get along. Uh, we always speak, every year we go down to Ocean City Tabernacle, which is at, obviously in Ocean City, New Jersey. It's a big gig for me. And um, they put us up in this hotel right on the beach. And uh, the kids want to go swimming. So they get in their swimsuits. I get in my swimsuit. We, Peggy's l l lagging behind. We come out, we go down the hall, we turn the corner uh, to go to the elevator. And I said to the kids, hey, let's scare mom. Get against the wall. And when she comes around the corner, let's jump out and yell, boo. What happened was an elderly woman came out of her apartment before 
Peggy could get around the corner. And so this old lady, just inching along, comes around the corner. And before we could stop ourselves, all three of us jumped out and yelled, boo. And this poor woman was going, oh, oh, oh. I said, madam, please excuse us. Forgive us. I thought, I thought you were my wife. Here she comes right now. And she walked by us and said, I've never seen these people before in my life. Well, now that you've shared the spiritual depths of our marriage. (laughs) And her daughter is just as bad. One time I had a gig for insurance corporations at a meeting in in Paris, and we stayed at the Intercontinental for two nights. That's what they gave us. But we wanted to stay two days more, so we took went over to the uh, to the uh, left bank. We went over to the where the Sorbonne is and looked for a cheap motel, cheap hotel. We walk in, and I go up to the counter. My 21 year old daughter is sitting next is standing next to me, and I said, "Excuse me, sir, do you have a room for the two of us?" He said, well, the only thing I have is a small room with two cots. And I said to Lisa, I said, that'll be all right, won't it, Lisa? And she said, look, mister, it doesn't make any difference to me. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you stay in a family like this for no other reason than for the laughs. You know, it's, it's a fun place to be. Another question. Yes, Russ Taff, stand up. How you doing, Guy? Good. Give him a round of applause. Uh, I wanted to ask Peggy. We were, we were together for three days at Mark's house um, a couple months ago, but Peggy was one of the first ones ever to begin to talk about the gay question and sacrifice so much. Um, and I wanted to ask her, I have you a question for you and a question for Peggy, and if this is inappropriate, please forgive me, but we've got to start a dialogue. Um, let me just say this. My youngest brother, he died in 2000, and I found out after the funeral a year later that um, it was a small little town, and uh, he, uh, Pentecostal, and uh, I didn't know it, uh, no one, but he was gay. And uh, he died, he drank himself to death, but he died believing that God hated him, he died believing that he's going to hell. And, uh, and as I look back on that, I grieve that I didn't know. Uh, uh, and at that time, I don't know what I believed. But I wanted to ask Peggy and then ask you a question. I wanted to ask Peggy, uh, with her work in speaking all over the country and, and all over the place, let me ask you this question, then I want to ask Tony sure. and I'll sit down. Have you seen any progress in the church? Oh. And, and then let me ask him, and I'm going to oh. sit down. Every time I try to talk about this, I always get the same five or seven scriptures thrown at me, and then it's swept about under the, the rug and out of the thing again. How can we start any kind of dialogue um, about this sort of thing? And about what about those scriptures? And have you seen any progress? First of all, Russ, I just rejoice that your younger brother knows now he was wrong about God hating him. I'm sure of that. Yes, I've seen a whole lot of progress. And you you see laws passed, and I know a lot of very happy families of same-sex couples with children. And things that I never even dreamed of when I started this about 30 years ago. 
But in the midst of that, there's never a month, hardly a week goes by when I don't meet somebody whose heart has been just broken, sometimes because parents don't understand, sometimes because a church has said the kind of things that make this person feel they have to go away from what's always been their church. So on one level, I'm absolutely thrilled with the way things are going, but there's always that sad story that breaks my heart, and I wish things would hurry up for those people. And, uh, but I, I know when I started uh, doing what I felt and still feel that God wanted me to do, I could hardly get the H word out of my mouth because people didn't talk about it. And uh, now, uh, Sometimes at a party, my husband kicks me under the table, which means we could talk about something else for a little while. So for me, it's gotten a lot better in terms of having people listen and being able to talk about it. And Russ, you're a good story for me because when I knew that about you, I slipped you a tape. That's how long ago it was, a tape, not a CD. And I never heard anything back from you until there came a time when there was somebody that you thought that it would be good if I talked to and you remembered what I did. And those are great stories for me when I get a chance to tell somebody what I absolutely believe, that they deserve all the rights and privileges I or anybody else has. I love to talk to those children of God who don't happen to be straight and maybe don't know yet they deserve everything everybody else has, and God wants them to have it that way. Russ, you wanted to ask me a question. About the verses. Yeah. Well, there are arguments that go on and on and on on in this and what those scriptures mean and long debates about the meaning of those scriptures what upsets me to be perfectly frank is that this whole question has become a defining issue for the church if you come out on Peggy's side you're obviously not a Christian to many people. You're outside of the household of faith. You reject the Bible. You don't take Jesus seriously. You can't be a real follower of the Lord. I mean, it's a defining issue. It's been a long time. I think it's been about 15 years. But George Carey, then the Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, the head of the Anglican community worldwide, invited me to speak at Lambeth. Now, for those of you who are non-Anglican, non-Episcopalians, Lambeth is the great gathering of Episcopalian and Anglican bishops from all over the world, and they make their policies for the church for the next 10 years. So it was strange that a Baptist should be invited to be a keynote speaker to all these Episcopalians and Anglicans. He invited me because he knew I, what I would do. I said, you know, you Anglicans, you Episcopalians, really intrigue me. You've got a, 
you've got a bishop up in Durham, England, who denies the resurrection. But you people say, well, we're, we're an inclusive church. We, we, we make room for people like that. You've got a bishop in Newark, New Jersey, who questions whether there's a personal God. We're, we're an inclusive church. We've got to make room for people like that. Uh, you've got the Jesus Seminar, which is made up of Episcopalians, uh, questioning whether Jesus said half of the things that we find in the Bible. You know, well, we're an inclusive church. We've got to make room for people like that. And then somebody brings up the issue of gay marriage, and you say, we've got to draw the line somewhere. Well, I think you should draw the line. But shouldn't the line be drawn over whether or not Jesus is resurrected from the dead and is alive in the world today, whether there's a personal God that loves us, that can enter into personal relationship with us? Shouldn't we draw the line over whether or not the Bible is a reliable source of truth, whether it reveals God to us? Isn't it true that these are the places where we should draw the line? In short, we've taken an issue which, if you look at the Bible, is really a very, very minor issue and have blown it up way out of proportion so that every major denomination in America and certainly the great communions of the world are on the verge of division over this question when it really boils down to about three verses in the book of Romans. One day, Bono called me on the telephone. Now, that's impressive. I mean, that, that Russ Taft calls me on the telephone that's significant. He never has, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but, bon, but Bono called me, and he said at the end of a concert the other day, I happened to say that there are 2,000 verses of Scripture that call upon us to respond to the needs of the poor and to sacrifice all of our wealth for the oppressed of the world. And, and, and the London Times came up afterwards and asked, could I validate that? And I told them I got it from Tony Campolo. So I'm calling you. Can you validate it? Well, the truth is, I, I wasn't sure where I got it from. Uh, maybe I made it up. I don't know. I, but there's one great thing about being a university professor. You have graduate assistants. And so I asked them to go to the Bible and with a magic marker in orange, underline every verse that talks about poverty and the oppression of weak people and the all the issues that deal with justice for the poor and the oppressed. When they finished, they didn't have 2,000. They had over 5,000 verses of Scripture. So I packed it up and sent it to, to Bono, who took it to the British Bible Society, and they had it published there. It came over here to this side of the pond, and World Vision got a hold of it, and they published it. And uh, you can get it. It's the Poverty and Justice Bible. And uh, that's, that, that's, that's where it came from. It came out of Bono asking the question. So here's a dominant theme of Scripture, justice for the poor and the oppressed. I find that the church tries to avoid that. Uh, you know, we, we have this movement in the United States now, started with a, a few of my students at Eastern University, and namely Shane Claiborne, who stood up at the National Youth Workers Convention. 17,000 youth workers, get the picture. And he begins by saying, you're about to hear the greatest sermon ever preached. Everybody kind of leaned back like, who does this kid think he is? We're going to hear the greatest sermon ever preached. He opened the Bible, read the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters of Matthew. 
when he finished and he said, well, we'll all agree, won't we? The Sermon on the Mount. That is the greatest sermon ever preached, right? He paused and he said, but then none of us are going to take that seriously. We think he was only kidding. And he sat down. That was the end. The vibrations that went across that convention and across the country is a good question. Do we take Jesus seriously? And before we get to those verses in Romans, we have to recognize what Jesus said about the homosexual issue. Nothing. It's not that he didn't know about it. And I think he was a conservative on the issue. That's my own you feeling. Do. Yeah. <laughs> but this has to be said. It wasn't where he focused. He focused on the poor and the oppressed. And if you go through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, Gandhi said, everybody knows what Jesus taught except for Christians. That's a heavy line. What does Jesus taught? And so this whole movement has grown up among young people called the Red Letter Christians Movement. Go to your computer, look up redletterchristians.org. There's articles, there's constant blogging that goes on. It's got about 6 million people around the world who are now calling themselves Red Letter Christians and say, before we get into arguments over what Paul taught on homosexuality, are you willing to do the things that, that Jesus asked us to do? Are you going to take Jesus seriously? I mean, that's a heavy question. I, one of them said to me, well, uh, you're retired now. What are you living on? I said, well, I got, you know, I put money away in the bank for, got RARAs and I got a retirement fund. He said, well, Jesus said, lay not for your ups for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and, and thieves break through and steal. Well, I said, well, I had to think about my old age and who's going to take it. He said, Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow what ye shall eat and what ye shall drink and wherewithal ye shall be clothed. He did say these things. Here I am in Nashville. If you were to ask evangelicals in this town, do you believe in capital punishment? I think the majority would say yes, even though Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. You say, yes, but if somebody commits a capital crime, shouldn't there be capital punishment? That's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says that's no longer the way. Jesus said, you want to be my disciple? Sell what you have. Give to the poor. Take up the cross and follow me. I don't like the teachings of Jesus. And that's why guys like me go to Paul. I'd rather argue on predestination and eternal security and over gay marriage because these things do not threaten me. I am a heterosexual, evangelical, orthodox Christian. I believe the Bible from cover to cover. I am so premillennial, I don't even eat post-toasties. I am sound. And I just wish that Jesus would ask those questions. You know, Camp Polo. Uh, on Judgment Day, I'm going to ask you, uh, virgin birth, uh, strongly agree, agree, disagree, strongly disagree, check one. If they give me a test like that, I'm in. I'm theologically sound. He's not going to ask me that. He's going to ask me, not the question that you asked so brazenly. <laughs> he's not going to ask me, what are your views on homosexuality? You know what he's going to ask me? I was hungry. Did you feed me? Naked, did you clothe me? Sick, did you care for me? I was a stranger. Did you make room for me in your town? Well, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. The verses that it usually comes down to are the verses in Romans. The other verses are hard to deal with. There's a passage in Leviticus where it says that uh, gay people uh, should be stoned. Incidentally, my daughter called me up 
a while back after the election. She said, well, uh, I'm finally convinced that the Bible is absolutely true. Um, you know, Colorado, the same day, voted to legalize marijuana and to legalize gay marriage. And Leviticus is right. If a man lies with a man, he should be stoned. <laughs> you know, that was, that was her response. Now, the Bible does say that. It does say that in Leviticus. It comes right after the passage that says to, to touch the skin of a dead pig is an abomination to God, which puts the whole Super Bowl into serious question. <laughs> this is why the Eagles never seem to get very far in the playoffs, because they are spiritual people. And, and when that ball is thrown to the tight end. When he's about to touch it, he remembers Leviticus and won't touch it. It's all part of what the ancient historians would call the purity codes, the kosher laws. None of you are kosher. You probably eat snails, or maybe you don't eat snails, shrimp. Um, you eat crabs. I know I do. You, you, you eat, and all of this is an abomination of God if you take Leviticus. So you can't use that passage. In, in Timothy, you have some verses that uh, really raise a question. Uh, and, uh, and when you look at those verses, you know, if you read the great evangelical scholars like N.T. Wright, that those verses refer uh, to a particular practice. It was called what, Peggy? Pederasty. Well, you can say it in the microphone, Peggy. Pederasty. And pederasty is what? Uh Men taking advantage of a little boy, castrating Yeah, not boy just taking advantage. Pedastry yeah. is, is castrating little boys so that they never develop hair on their chin or never get a deep voice. It ruins their whole system. And uh, gay people say, please, don't compare us to anybody that would do anything as terrible as that. Um, there's a passage uh, in Corinthians where it, it, it talks about unclean behavior. And uh, the word is arsenikoitai in the Greek. Nobody's quite sure what that means. Because when they translated the Bible, they always looked for parallel uses of the word in the literature of the time. The problem with that word, arsenikoitai, is they couldn't find any common usage of the word at the time that Jesus was alive. And after that, it, it, they just couldn't find. So they're not sure what it means. Now, some versions would call it uh, homosexual behavior, but that's their predisposition. Anything that's unclean has to be homosexual, as though heterosexual people don't do anything unclean. So it boils down to Romans. And there, I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? And, where it's, and incidentally, it's the only place where women's behavior that's homosexual is mentioned, uh, where uh, men lie with men, uh, women lie with women, there are a couple of things to be said. The first thing to be said is, it's quite specific, that those people have given up, says Paul, their natural desires. Their natural desires. Gay people will say, you don't get it, man. That's not my natural desire to do a, to do a heterosexual thing. That's not my natural desire. M my natural desire is homosexual. But secondly, it can be argued and I'm not sure it's a good argument, so let me be frank on this. I'm not sure it's a good argument. Did, did you hear me? 
So when Peggy Mace's claim, I, I'm not sure it holds as much water as she thinks it holds. Uh, there's this uh, uh, fact that he wrote that passage in the first chapter of Romans where it says, and they took the image of the incorruptible God, turned him into an image like unto the corruptible man, unto four-footed beasts, birds of the air, and they ended up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Therefore, God has given them up unto uncleanness, and it goes into the homosexual stuff. The problems with that is it makes idolatry the cause of homosexual behavior very clearly. And it can be argued that Paul wasn't really condemning loving relationships between gay persons. What he was really condemning was the... Orgies in the temple. I didn't want to say it. She, whenever, see, she always likes to talk about orgies. I don't know what's the matter with her. But in the Greek temples, they had these horrible orgies. And if you study the history of that period, they had this, this the temple had these little rooms around the side of the temple to, uh, to the goddess. Uh, and, and men would go in and there'd be male prostitutes. Women would go in and there'd be women prostitutes. And they would have this homosexual uh, orgy. Uh, and the people that would be doing it were heterosexuals behaving in a totally unnatural way. Now, that's the one that's used. Namely, Paul was condemning practices related to the idolatry at Corinth. He wasn't talking about loving relationships between partners. I don't think the argument works very well. I'm just being personal. I, I just don't think it cuts it with, with, with people who are thinking Tony, that through. won't you agree that there are credible scholars on, on both sides of the argument? And I'm not the only... Uh, advocate and ally of gay people who's gotten tired of the meeting when we go through the clobber passages. Um, you know, we do this over and over. And yeah, but you, you, you said it well. What? There are reputable people on both sides of the argument. And whenever you say this is clear, mm -hmm. you're going a little bit beyond what the evidence would suggest. And meanwhile, kids in churches Gay guys are getting told if they marry the right woman, it'll go away. They, Kids aren't going home for Christmas, and we're doing the clobber passages at meetings. Okay. Now, we've been debating this for years. Dialoguing. <laughs> I've been moving closer and closer in her direction. And the reason for changes in my thinking interestingly enough, comes from none of this. It comes from getting ready to teach a course that I'm going to be teaching next semester at Eastern University. It's called uh, uh, Social Justice in American Institutions. Well, at Penn, when I taught this course, the audience was extremely mixed. Out of a class of about 150 in this class, there may have been about three or four Christians at the most. There were Hindu people, Muslims, Jews, a lot of Jewish kids, and almost all of them secularist. And, uh, and so we had to come up with a definition of justice. We're going to talk about justice. What is justice? Because obviously, what is just in one society is not just in another society. How long did South Africa believe that apartheid was just? And when we came down and said, 
It's not justice. Who are you coming from, from the United States of America imposing your values on our society? Every society has a right to come up with its own concepts of justice, of right and wrong. That sounds sociology and anthropology. So we had to come up with a common argument. Of what is it that we all can agree on as justice? What we came up with was most interesting. It was easy, incidentally. Whatever is just is that which enhances the humanization of a human being. What is unjust diminishes the humanity of another human being. It's as simple as that. The students all bought into Abraham Maslow's concept of the self-actualized human being. If you take a psychology course in college, they'll teach you that. That we're all homo sapiens. That's our animal nature. And we're all struggling to actualize what it means to be human. And, and Maslow gave us a very clear vision of what it meant to be a human being. It meant being courageous, being honest, being loving, being kind, being empathetic. It goes on and on. The list is wonderful. And anything that enhances our progress to becoming this actualized human being is good and just. Anything that diminishes the dignity of another human being is unjust, is evil. And I remember doing this 30 years ago at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm listening to the old tape. What is good is what enhances the humanity. What is evil is what diminishes the humanity of another human being. It was as simple as that. And everybody agreed, and we had a great course after that when we came up with the definition. And so we talked about racism. It was wrong because what? It diminishes the humanity of another person. We talked about sexism. Sexism diminishes the dignity of women. We, talked, we went on down the list. You know what? It was 30 years ago. What never came up in our discussion was homosexuality. I mean, do you realize that this is something that's hot now? It wasn't hot 30 years ago. And don't blame it on the gays for making it the hot issue. Blame it on television evangelists who found that they could get raise a lot of money. This is cynical, but you can raise a lot of money simply by attacking gays. If you, if you say it loud enough and say it strong enough and say, send me your money and I will go and put together a petition with hundreds of thousands of names and I will personally present it to the president of the United States. I always ask myself, why do you need $50 from me to present a petition? Just let me sign the thing. But that was the thing. And there's a lot of money to be raised. After that, Politicians realized that they could win a lot of elections simply by making anti-gayism a part of their agenda. And so they have, they have set the agenda for the church rather than the church setting the agenda for the world. And they have got us fighting each other, uh, yelling at each other, husbands and wives differing with each other. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, it's, it's a lot of smoke that has been generated for political and economic reasons. I'm a sociologist, so we always look for the latent political and economic issues that lie behind that. So that's a long response to that. You didn't that. finish your, uh, the humanization and what you've seen. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, what she's going to get at, and she made sure that I got at it, <laughs> was Peggy had all these friends of hers that were gay and that were married. 
And I had to ask myself a simple question. Is this relationship helping them to become more actualized as human beings? Is this a creative relationship that is building up the emotional and psychological well-being of the partners? Or is it diminishing their dignity? Is it diminishing their humanity? And that's got me rethinking the issue. Uh, it, it, the, the, the reality is that we are arguing over this. And Pastor, you need to listen to this one because you've got to preach a sermon on this. I think the church has never stopped long enough to define marriage. We have not got a solid theological description of marriage. We have reduced marriage to totally sexual terms. People are married because they have sexual intercourse with each other. Jeez. Whoa, is that what it's about? That's what the Catholic Church wrongly suggested, that the only purpose for sex was procreation, which makes an old guy like me say, well, can you procreate at your age? Of, so, I well, don't want to. Yeah, see, so we, we, well, well, we can't do that dirty stuff anymore. Then that's, that's how. Is, is marriage for the purpose of procreation? I mean, that was the official position of the church. Jeez, it's totally sexual. And so we look at marriage in totally sexual terms. Is marriage infinitely more than a sexual intercourse? Or is it an intimate relationship between persons where each becomes more and more Christ-like, more and more fulfilled, more and more actualized as a human being? That's the way I look at marriage. That's my theology of marriage. It's a relationship that enhances us, that the husband and wife are high priests to each other bringing Christ into each other's lives, elevating their relationship until it reaches a higher and higher level. I mean, we have this idea that as long as you're, you've got a minister who says certain words that, and you go to bed and you have sex, that you're married, well, I'm afraid that the Bible implies that it's much more than that. It is, in fact, a humanization process, better described for Christian as a spiritualizing relationship. And if your marriage is not spiritually enhancing, it's not the marriage that Jesus wants you to be, even though you've never committed adultery. One story that Peggy likes me to tell is somebody coming into my office. You're going to be a counselor now. I hope you don't run into this one. This student comes in. She's a married woman in her 30s. And she says, my husband's having an affair. And I said, what, how, find a motel slip. Did you uh, lipstick on the collar or find a letter? Uh, why do you say this? Oh, she said, it's none of that. He's not having sex with another woman. You see, he goes to work and he has this colleague. And over the last six years, they've developed a very intense relationship with each other. And they go out and have lunch together for two hours every day. And they share with each other in depth. What I'm telling you, Tony, is that I'm not his wife and, she, and he has a whore on the side. I'm telling you this. She's become his wife. And I'm his whore. Whoa. Well, when you reduce sex to marriage and marriage to sex, that's what you run into. 
marriage becomes simply a relationship in which one person deposits sperm in another person? Or is it much more profound, much more spiritual, much more lofty than that? And the church is yet to spell out a theology that captures the dignity of marriage as Christ would have it be. So before you can talk whether or not gay marriage is legitimate, you've got to ask, do we even understand marriage? Because I find that there are a lot of heterosexual marriages that are dehumanizing the persons. Do you know married couples where the way in which they relate to each other is dehumanizing them, is diminishing the dignity of the other? Do you know women who have been reduced to trash, not because their husbands have been committing adultery, they're deacons of the church, but the way they're talked to and the way they're treated. And so what is marriage? And we've got to answer that question before we even get into the issue of gay marriage. You had a question. Wait, 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 wait. You're about, oh, he's about to say something. And by the way, we are 52 minutes into 90 minutes. We've had three questions so far, and Russ got two of them. I'm just <laughs> saying. Yeah. Okay, we'll be shorter. Go ahead. I'll make my question short. Um, why do you think that, um, that marriage has been defined so much in terms of sex? St. Augustine did it. If you read the writings before Augustine, it wasn't defined that way. St. Augustine messed up all of us. Let's just be honest. You haven't read St. Augustine, but if you do, you'll be stunned. Uh, his whole understanding of sex, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, oh, I won't go into his. We've got enough problems without getting into Augustine. <laughs> yeah. But I would have to say Augustine yeah. becomes the defining point in the life of the church on this issue. There was stuff before that. And the Greeks, in fact, created the problem before Augustine. And all Augustine did was took Greek philosophy. You see, the Greeks said there are two aspects of a human being. There is the spiritual intellectual side and there's the physical side. Everything about the spiritual and the intellectual is good. Everything about the physical is evil. It was as simple as that. The physical is evil. The spiritual is good. So we talked about having the Greeks, a platonic relationship in which you shared great ideas, but nothing physical ever happened. Well, I don't think according to Jesus, something happened just because you didn't have sex doesn't mean you didn't have intimacy and, and don't, that doesn't mean you weren't unfaithful. So it changes the whole dynamics of marriage. So let me just say the Greeks did, started it before Augustine. Augustine took uh, Plato's philosophy and made it Christian theology. There's one there and one there. Thanks for everything you're saying. Um, my question is, as a recent former evangelical, um, I've got tired of waiting for the evangelical church to address these issues, such as what you're, we're talking about tonight, and even the definition of marriage, Israel-Palestine, climate change, civil rights for women, minorities, gays, etc., what is so threatening to the evangelical church as a whole for justness and humanity? Do you want to answer that? Young people in universities who are evangelical in their theology don't want to use the word evangelical anymore. That's why we started this red-letter Christians movement. We're calling ourselves red-letter Christians. Why? Because we take Jesus seriously. If I go to Harvard and I'm introduced as an evangelical, I'm going to get picketed. 
I have gotten picketed. The gay liberation movement will be in front of the chapel, screaming and yelling. The feminist movement will be there, screaming and yelling. The anti-war movement will be there, screaming and yelling. Because to the typical university student, when you say, I'm evangelical, they immediately have defined you. You're anti-gay, you're anti-women, you're pro-war, you're anti-environment. They go down the list. And we're saying, wait a minute. We believe in Jesus. We, we have a personal relationship with Christ. We take the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed seriously. We, we believe the Bible is not an ordinary book, but the Holy Spirit infused the writers so that what they produced was an infallible guide for faith and practice. We're even, we, we can't use the word because the word has become completely identified with the right wing of the Republican Party. And there's nothing wrong with that. Please don't get me wrong. I am not saying that people at the right wing of the Republican Party are less spiritual than people at the extreme left wing of the Democratic Party. I think God's mad at both of them. Uh, I, I got to tell you this. I, Jesus is neither a Democrat nor a Republican. Amen. And what we have done is we have politicized Jesus. And when I say I'm an evangelical, they immediately put me into a political box where I don't belong. And so that's why we started using the term red letter Christians. Go to the website, red letter Christians with an S, redletterchristians.org. Check it out. You'll find some of this stuff. And this is spreading like wildfire. We've only been in existence for a little over a year and a half. We have over 6 million young men and women around the world who are identifying themselves as red-letter Christians. Just a week ago, Peggy and I were in Switzerland in a church which calls itself a red-letter Christian church, and it's spreading all over the place. So I think that the word evangelical can no longer be used without political connotations. Don't be upset, because there was a time when the word fundamentalist was a good word, and I would have called myself a fundamentalist 60, 70 years ago. But over the years, fundamentalism has become identified with judgmentalism, has become identified with anti-scientific thinking. It's been, it's been so, so ruined that Billy Graham and Carl Henry in 1954 said, we're not going to call ourselves fundamentalists anymore. We're going to call ourselves evangelicals. The word fundamentalist has too much negative baggage. Well, people, let me break it to you. The word evangelical now has a lot of lousy baggage. And I don't want to get involved in partisan politics because partisan politics and Jesus do not mix. It's like mixing ice cream with horse manure. It doesn't hurt the horse manure. It messes up the ice cream. And that's what happens when we take Jesus and, the, and Christianity and identify with any one political stance. We're all across the spectrum, amen? And whether you're a Christian has to do with your relationship with Jesus Christ and whether or not he's a personal presence in your life. One more question and we'll call it quits. Oh, you got one? No, 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 you got half an hour. Oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I wanted to get out of here. Um, what would you say, because I know um, for me personally, sometimes it's been easier to label people on one end of the political spectrum, so to speak, and, um, you know, some things that the far right does breaks my heart, but what would you say for us who identify ourselves as progressive Christians, so to speak, what would you say is the biggest mistake 
in our country that progressive Christians are making? I think you need to do two things. Every night you ought to listen to CNN and then you ought to turn and listen to Fox News. Because you know the reality, don't you? That both of those stations give a perspective on the news and they're not, neither of them are objective. When people tell me that Fox News is, is fair and balanced, I laugh. Of course they're not. Neither is CNN. It's very hard to balance everything out. But they have these various views. And I, I guess your question is, what, what do we do about all of this? Yeah. They're all, you know, they're always pointing fingers at the left. But what are we on the left doing that's a huge mistake exactly. that we don't see in ourselves? Whenever anybody asks me, are you a Democrat or a Republican, I always answer the same way. Name the issue. On a lot of the issues, I'm with the Republicans. On a lot of the issues, I'm with the Democrats. And whenever you try to put Jesus into a political box, you're committing idolatry. You are recreating God in your own image. George Bernard Shaw said it well. God created us in his image, and we decided to return the favor. And so all the Democrats who are on the extreme left try to make Jesus into a leftist. All the people on the, on the right try to make Jesus into a Republican. He refuses to conform to our ideologies. He calls us to surrender to his way of thinking and to what he is. So uh, I think that we have to take that posture. Name the issue. If you are in agreement with everything that the Democratic Party says, you'd better take a good look at yourself. You've been seduced into an ideological idolatrous position. That sounded, well, that sounded sophisticated. You've been seduced into an ideologically idolatrous position, but that's what you've been, and you've got to get out of that. You've got to break loose. Be not conformed to this world. Whether that world is Republican, whether that world is Democrat, don't get conformed. Be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Somebody, somebody else had a question back there. Hey, Tony. I'm interested with the younger generation. Uh, I've done a lot of work with young adults, but you've done a lot of work yeah. with young people um, for years. I'm interested in what is, do you see the shift, not only the red-letter Christians, but I also see a, a trend and a shift towards more uh, mysticism, um, but yet Christianity, but more mysticism, more uh, with a little metaphysics included. And what uh, is your view and what do you see the younger generation's um, view, I guess more so is what I'm asking, view of God? What, what does God look like? When we say God the word, you know, God is listening, God is this, you know, growing up we often see the old man with a beard in the sky and, you know, what does God look like to this generation? Are you talking about young people being more spiritual but less religious? Yeah. Tony, that's really your question. You've been. When you say mystical, you're absolutely right. That's why the Pentecostal movement has exploded across this country. I mean, Southern Baptists bless their hearts because they, they, they are endeavoring to be faithful to the Word of God, but they're losing members now for the first time in their history and losing them at a rapid rate. And they think it's because they're allowing a little bit of liberalism into the church. That's not what's happening. What's happening is this. 
they're leaving Southern Baptist churches and going down to the street and joining the Pentecostal church because they want a Christianity where they feel God. The 20th century, the 20th century was into Calvin. Calvin was the ultimate philosophical logician. If you want a logical philosophy, a systematic theology, Calvin's your man. He has it figured out and it's systematized and everything fits together neatly. There's no loopholes. There's no absences. It's a brilliant system. The 21st century is different. They're saying theology is boring. It's deadly. It's dusty. It's dry. We want to feel God. I remember my Calvinistic Baptist pastor saying, you can't trust your feelings. Don't tell that to an Italian. I mean, I want to feel God. I love that old hymn. I dream, I ask no dream, no prophet's ecstasy, but please take the deadness of my soul away. I want God exploding inside of me. I want to believe that the, that being saved is having within you what Jesus said, a fountain of living water bubbling up, exploding within you. I, I want to, the Bible says in the eighth chapter of Romans, you who were dead, boy, that describes a lot of churches. You who are dead, you hath he made alive. I got to tell you, we're losing people to the church, from the church, particularly young people, left and right. Not because we don't have a, an intellectually sound apologetic, but because there's a deadness there. And they don't like the deadness. They want to feel something. And this morning when I spoke, I, I talked about the Catholic mysticism. St. Ignatius, uh, St. John of the Cross, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the hero of the age is St. Francis of Assisi. He's the new hero, mystical. I mean, do you know about St. Francis, who one day left his libertine life, and his friend, and he go to church, and he says, whatever they read from the Gospels today, we're going to do. And they read from the Gospels. You want to be my disciple, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, take up the cross and follow me. Francis says to his friend, that's what we're going to do. And the whole Franciscan movement starts out of a, out of a guy who takes Jesus seriously. And he's a mystic. He goes into the hills to pray. If you go to Assisi, go, two things happen. He goes to this little chapel called San Damiano. If you've been to Assisi, don't miss this little chapel on the edge of Assisi. And he's there praying, what's going to happen to me? And Jesus speaks to him from the cross and says, Francis, my church is in ruins. Restore the church. And Francis stupidly looks around and says, the place really is falling apart. And for the next two years, he and his friends patch up this building. And then it dawns on him that the problem is not the building. The problem is the church. And he becomes the great reformer. But as we, we, we get into all of this, uh, we, we get into as mysticism, a spiritual thing. And so uh, young people, and you can't go to a seminary now, even a very evangelical seminary, fundamentalist seminary, without having to take a course on spiritual formation. That's the new in word. It's what are the religious practices that will make you spiritual? They want to become 
spiritual. They want to feel the presence of God. It's the wave of the future. I am contending. If the 20th century belonged to Calvin, the 21st century belongs to John Wesley, who had the theology down pat, even became a missionary. How evangelical can you be? And he's dead inside. And one day he wanders into a prayer meeting, a Moravian prayer meeting on Aldersgate Street, which is why every other Methodist church is called Aldersgate Methodist Church. And he's sitting in this prayer meeting with 20 people. And he writes in his diary the next morning, and suddenly my heart was strangely warmed and I knew. Whoa, that's what they want. The spirit bearing witness with their spirit. Uh, my, heart, my greatest intellectual hero, hero is Blaise Pascal. Invented, invented calculus when he was nine years old. You wondered who did that. It was Blaze. Seriously, he was being, being punished. They sent him to his bedroom to be punished, and he didn't have anything else to do, so he invented calculus. It was his way of getting back at everybody. He writes in his diary, I went into the room, into the dark room, at 7.30 p.m., and I sat in darkness, determined not to leave until I felt the Holy Spirit. And he writes in his diary the next day, 10.30 p.m., fire, fire, fire. Not the God of the philosophers, not the God of the theologians, not the God of the scientists and the mathematicians, but the God that was alive in Abraham, Moses, and Jacob. Fire, 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 joy, 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 fire, joy, fire, joy, 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 unspeakable joy. That's what this generation is looking for, people. That's what it's looking for, that mystical experience. I need to tell them about Marjo. Take another question. I was just wondering for you, Peggy, what are some of the women or men who, I don't know, influenced you? Obviously, in your relationship, you come from different, I don't know, very differing views but there seems to be obviously a mutual respect and honoring of one another. And I'm sure you've had to grow into that, but living through what you did, like who were some of the women also, you don't seem to, you know, ooze, I am woman, hear me roar. And I want to scrush I them. Ooze, ooze, I am woman, hear me roar. I want to, you know, squash the men. You seem to come out balanced. <laughs> who are some of the people who've influenced you? Know, so a lot of my models are people that you wouldn't know. When I started speaking out on behalf of those children of God who don't happen to be straight, a lot of people came to me and walked with me, and I saw happy marriages and children being raised well. And there are people like that all over the country who have influenced me greatly. Uh, people that you might know, uh, early on I was part of a movement called Soul Force that was founded by Mel White, who's still a friend of mine. And uh, Mel was a gay man who married a woman and had two children and suffered, he's the same age Tony and I am, he's not a young person, 
and he suffered greatly trying to be what he thought God in the church wanted him to be, and he somehow came through that well enough to lead a movement where we went around and we peacefully demonstrated at denominational meetings and places where we wanted people to hear our message, the worldwide gathering of the Catholic bishops, uh, Methodist uh, convention for the whole United States, and uh, being with him and the other people who came to that made me feel like I was part of something much bigger than myself, and it made me feel like I was part of a movement of God. So he was a primary influence. Uh, somebody, I'll tell you a person who would Ralph? be a good model for you. No, I was, I was going to say, I, I'm sure that those of you who are members of this church see the weaknesses in this person, but uh, your, your pastor is one of those guys Amen. that we look to and say, yeah. we think that's a pretty, a pretty neat model of a Christian. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you can give me all kinds of dirt. But having said that, I do know this, that this guy has been willing to stand up and say, yeah. this is what I believe. And I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not simply to build up the membership of the church. I'm not going to get caught up, get caught up in that mega church mentality that measures your spirituality in terms of how many people show up on Sunday morning. I'm going to speak the truth as I know it, and if the Holy Spirit convicts me otherwise, I will articulate that and confess that I was wrong. But I, I really feel that your pastor has done a good job, and we talk about yeah, this. We talked about this this afternoon, and I'm so glad you yeah, brought it yeah, in here. The, the, these yeah. are the kind of people who, who pay the price, and uh, you, you can name them, can't yeah. you? Uh, I, I guess, can you name other individuals that you know? Well, I, I was thinking uh, back to somebody who I don't think anybody here will know. Uh, when I first had an experience with Jesus Christ in the hospital room of a friend of mine who was dying, she thought I was a Christian because I was pretending I was, and uh, she needed what I didn't have to give her. And I decided because I loved her to tell her all that I knew about Jesus and grace and heaven, and I was holding her hand. She was in her 80s then. I was much younger, and I know I gave her something that I didn't have, uh, and when I left the hospital that day, I realized I believed what I had told Helen, and my first thought then was, well, what will change about my life? I was already a good church lady visiting old ladies in the hospital, and all the good testimonies I knew were about giving up prostitution or drugs, and I just thought, well, I'm not going to have much of a testimony. And it was about two weeks after that that Tony and I ran into a couple who wanted to tell us everything that was wrong with the church and the world, and first on their list was the gay people. And uh, I didn't say anything because I'd never said anything to argue with anybody much, especially when I was with Tony on a speaking engagement. And I cried myself to sleep that night, and I said to God, I know what I was supposed to do, and if you give me another chance, I won't blow it. And I've had a whole lot of chances since then, and I don't always argue. I always say Tony's the Doberman in our family. I'm kind of a cocker spaniel. 
but I never let anything that isn't true about those children of God who don't happen to be straight be said in my presence without saying, however nicely and softly I might, that that isn't the truth I know, that I'm sorry they don't know the gay people at my church, single and married. And uh, it, it kind of has evolved from there that uh, I feel like I need to say something. But right after that, I realized I needed to know what the Bible said, because as Russ Taft's question pointed out, uh, the Bible has been so misused. My friends and I call those passages the clobber passages because that's what they're used for. And I thought that I needed to talk to someone who believed what I did about gay people but also knew the Bible a whole lot better than I did. And somebody told me I should go up to New York City and talk to a man named Dr. Ralph Blair. Uh, Dr. Blair was a pioneer in this whole movement that I'm part of. Back, he, he went to uh, Bob Jones University and Dallas Theological Seminary where he didn't have a lot of company or support for his belief as a gay man that it was fine and good to have a relationship, a marriage, a partnership, whatever you want to call it. And he was a, a well-versed in the Bible, and I went up to see him and spent an hour with him, and he was the one who showed me what I believe that the Bible really said, and he was the one that invited me to speak for the first time, and uh, he, he changed my life. Peggy has obviously made this cause her raison d'etre. Mine has been only tangentially that. Tangentially, yes. Thanks for correcting my pronunciation. Sorry. Like this every day, this goes on like this. I the forgot truth, I had a microphone. Yeah, <laughs> the reality is that, uh, is that my cause has been the poor, has always been the poor and the oppressed, the beaten down peoples of the world uh, uh, who are the victims of poverty. And one of my heroes is a guy named Gordon Cosby, he died uh, just uh, two years ago. But the last time I was arrested, and I get arrested for the right reasons, and in this case, it was on behalf of the poor that I was arrested, and it was in Washington, D.C. And um, we were arrested and taken to the police station, and I was right behind Gordon when they fingerprinted him. And the guy that was writing your name, Gordon Cosby, is an was an Episcopal minister, Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. And uh, your name, Gordon Cosby. Guy looked up and said, Gordon Cosby, are you here again? When are you going to grow up? And Cosby, this 94-year-old man, raised his arms in the air and said, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're forever young. We're forever young. And all of us started clapping and cheering. And you could just see this guy looking, who are these weird people, you know? But uh, he's one of my heroes. So you can pick these people, and we need them in order to keep us alive. Another question out there. Ever, ever since Christ, um, 2,000 years ago, why don't we have another 
biblical hero in today's life? Why don't we have another biblical hero? Correct. I think we have them all around us. We don't pay attention to them. Uh, I know people who are doing heroic stuff. I mean, we all talk about Mother Teresa, but I've met many people who would fall into the category of Mother Teresa, uh, who are just super spiritual. We live in a world where we don't have heroes. We have celebrities. There's a big difference between a celebrity and a hero. And the American people are preoccupied with celebrities. And when we want somebody to talk about Jesus, we don't go to a hero. We go to a celebrity. And we want a football player. Uh, we want, uh, uh, you know, somebody, uh, a Miss America, somebody who's, who's really gained public attention. Uh, well, I got to tell you, uh, Jesus doesn't promise that the heroes of the faith will be celebrities. He says, as a matter of fact, when you become a celebrity, you better be careful. Better be careful. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, it says. Uh, that we usually don't think of our spiritual heroes until they're dead. I mean, hey, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Everybody in Nashville thinks that Martin Luther King was a wonderful man, stood up for civil rights, changed America, moved it in the right direction. We all love Martin Luther King. I'm old enough to remember Nashville, Tennessee in 1958, 59, 60, 61. You weren't loving Martin Luther King then. They had to kill him. Then we began to say, well, this guy was a little better than we thought he was. And we have elevated the man since his death. Obviously, Abraham Lincoln was not considered a, a hero until after he was shot. Um, Jesus said, woe unto you, you kill the prophets. You kill the prophets. So uh, they're around people, and you look at them, and, and sometimes, uh, one story, because I, I love stories. Uh, a friend of mine told me about uh, being, in, uh, being in his midweek prayer meeting, and a guy stood up and gave his testimony. He said, I was in Sydney, Australia, and a shabby man, I think he was homeless, came up behind me and pulled my jacket, and I turned and he said, mister, if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? And he walked away. The question began to bother me. By the end of the night, I was shaking. When I got back to the States, I went to see my pastor. He led me to Christ. My friend said it was about a year or so later that another man stood up at the midweek prayer meeting and said, I was in Sydney, Australia. I was at King's Cross, which is a very important intersection. And somebody pulled on my jacket. I turned around, and here was this disheveled old man who said, Mr., if you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? And he walked away. I was so upset by the question. I went back to my room. I got down on my knees. I cried, and I surrendered my life to Christ. My pastor friend said it was about six months later that I was in Sydney, Australia. I went down to King's Cross to look around and see if that guy was still there. I'm looking and looking, and all of a sudden, somebody pulled on my jacket. He said, I turned, and I said, don't say anything. I know what you're going to do. You're going to ask me, if I was to die tonight, where would I spend eternity? He said, the old man was stunned. He said, how did you know that? And my friend said, I, I told him about the two men who gave their lives to Christ because of him. He said, this old guy started to cry. 
He said, Mr., it was eight years ago. I was a drunk on the streets, sleeping in the gutters, and I wandered into the Salvation Army, and they, they introduced me to Jesus there, and I wanted to do something for Jesus. And for the last eight years, the only thing I could think to do was to go around and ask people this question. I, I'm not trained. I don't speak. I don't know much of anything. I just knew that I should ask this question. I've been doing it day after day for eight years, and Mr., Today's the first day that I had any idea that it did anybody any good. Well, that afternoon, I happened to hear that story from the guy, and I headed off to Australia for a speaking tour. And I was on the Australian broadcasting system, and I told the story of this guy and about his, his testimony over all these years. Before the program ended, the switchboard at the station had lit up. People were calling in from all over the place, all over Australia, talking about how their lives had been changed by this, this man. And he died in the year 2000. Well, a little bit, be it was actually 1999. And when he died, the station put out the word that he had died. People sent in money. And they made this huge neon sign, which they plastered across the Great Harbor Bridge in Sydney. When you, when you see Sydney, they always show you the Harbor Bridge and the Opera House. Across the Harbor Bridge was the word eternity. And when the new year started and the firecrackers were going off and, and the fireworks were going off behind the Great Harbor Bridge, above it all, with one word, eternity. And the testimony went on. This is a heroic man. Nobody knows who he is, but he changed the lives of all kinds of people and impacted a nation. So the glorious people of our time may not be the real heroes. And those that the world calls nothing are the somebodies. Another question? Over here. I was glad you did this because all the questions have been on the left side. And I wondered whether this had any political significance. I, yeah. <clears throat> That's your left. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo. Listen, I'm the comedian here. You stay no. out of this. <laughs> During this morning's presentation, you had said something that uh, for me was probably the most intriguing and thought-provoking thing that I had heard. And it's when you were recounting your experience with the duck lady. Now, I don't know how much time has passed since this experience, but I wonder if you have anything more to say with regard to that experience. Perhaps, um, what do you, you briefly describe what you thought happened. Is there anything further that you could tell us about that? Do you feel that, what did you have to do with that, if anything? How did it come about, perhaps? This is the Hawaii story, right? No, no. The, the duck, duck lady. lady. Oh, yeah. oh, the duck lady. Oh, that, that, yeah. Well, it, it has changed the way in which I meet people. 
I, I do my best to look into people's eyes. And it, I do my best to feel Christ coming through the other person. My theology is built around this statement. That the same Jesus that died on the cross for me, the same Christ that was resurrected and has sent the Holy Spirit to invade me, that same Jesus is waiting to be encountered in every person that I meet. Whether he's the president of the United States, or whether he's or she is a duck lady, that Christ is waiting to be encountered in those people that I meet. Mother Teresa said it this way, whenever I look into the eyes of a man dying of AIDS, I have this eerie sensation of Jesus staring back at me. The duck lady was important because she was sacramental. I'm glad you caught the emphasis on that, sacramental. Whenever I say that, Catholics in the audience get happy because, you know, they're a sacramental church and, and they believe that in Holy Communion, the bread becomes the flesh of Jesus and the wine, the blood of Christ. And thus the sacrament, when they eat the bread and drink the wine, they are ingesting the very presence of Christ. Oh, I have no idea what happened to the lady. I mean, she continued to wander around the campus. I saw her several times after that and always talked to her. And she always stopped and talked to me. And I always tried to connect with her. But it never happened again like it did at that mystical encounter. But it's encounters like that has happened many, many times since then. Many, many times since then. And uh, I have felt Christ coming at me through other people, and they become sacramental. They become the means of grace, that grace comes to me. I sense Jesus flowing to me through them. And so uh, when Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me, I take that very literally. And in the least, I look for Jesus. It changed my attitudes towards the poor. It was part of what conditioned my whole missionary outlook. Because when I see somebody in need, I don't see some pathetic person. I sense Jesus there. If I look into their face, I see Jesus there. I tell my students this at Eastern University. I say, if you're going to be a social worker, you'd better be able to find Jesus coming at you through your clients. Because if you don't, you will diminish their humanity. People don't like to be pitied. And no wonder Thoreau said, whenever anybody says to me, I want to help you, I flee. Because you know how helping people can diminish their dignity. I mean, whatever can be said about the welfare system, and even the most left-wing liberal will say the same thing. We may have given people what they needed to buy food or whatever, but they lost some of their dignity when they had to accept the handout. But if in the other person you do not see a pathetic victim of an oppressive socioeconomic order, if you look into the face of the other and sense Jesus in the depths of that person's being, 
You will not ask, am I noble enough to help? You will ask, am I worthy? Am I worthy? Because you'll sense Jesus in the other person. That's why I become a radical activist. I can't stand anybody being oppressed because I see Jesus being oppressed. And I can't stand watching people who are hungry because I see Jesus who is hungry. So that's how it's changed me. I wandered around the campus, and I've told that student story to students at Penn. And I know that many of them told me, when we meet the duck lady, we always look at her differently, and we always talk to her differently. As a matter of fact, we never talked to her before at all. So it has had its ramifications. And that's one of those strange encounters with God. And we thank God for those kinds of encounters. One more question. Anybody else? And then we'll kind of... One more and then we'll say, that's it. Okay. Uh, Tony, uh, this morning, um, I, I really don't like to worship a whole lot. Um, and I was, this was my first morning here at, at Grace Point and, um, we sang, you forgive, you forgive everyone and you redeem, you redeem everyone and you restore, you restore everyone. And, um, I, I, I feel like I worship this morning but I don't feel like I am around a lot of people who believe that, that they would be maybe offended by that. Um, that God, um, you're not forgiven and you're not redeemed and you can't be restored unless you make. And I think your words this morning too were that, was, was that a belief is not assent to propositional truths. And, um, and you made some uh, beautiful statements to think about the Holy Spirit is already in, in us. It's just for us to wake up and for the, maybe as Paul says, for the eyes of our hearts to, to, to be enlightened so that we can understand the hope that we, that we have. Um, and I, I think, I love your story that you told of the man who says, if, if, you, if you died tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? But I think my question would be maybe too, do you feel like that question could also cause a lot of um, pain in a lot of people's lives, a lot of confusion? Um, maybe even to where, where, like you quoted Thoreau, I think sometimes when people ask me that now, I kind of want to run the, <laughs> I kind of want to run the other way as well. Um, or maybe as because uh, I, I teach young people, and I think a lot of them, uh, I teach a lot of teenagers, and I think a lot of them have maybe been confused by, I think um, the that question being, kind of the the dualistic understanding. Uh, Christianity is about leaving this place and escaping this place and going to a better. A better reality elsewhere. So I don't know if I asked a question there, but yeah. maybe just if if you could, I got something. If out you of could that comment question. on maybe just, um, what's the, yeah. how well, is that maybe how's that question? Where are you going to spend eternity? Really, maybe had some negative um, impact on maybe Christians here in the West. Well, my my son has who is a, really a great evangelist and missionary uh, this past year, 
decided he didn't believe anymore. And people have been on me saying, well, aren't you worried about where he will spend eternity? He's become the humanist chaplain at University of Southern California. Interesting. And he's doing all the things that he did as a missionary. He's spending all day counseling brokenhearted kids, trying to put broken lives together, setting up covered dish suppers so that young people can get to know each other and become friends and care about each other. He's picketing against the university, which is not a good thing to do if you're employed by the university because they're paying their, their janitorial staff uh, $7.50 an hour, and you can't live on that in California. So he's standing up for justice, and he's working for the beaten down people and the hurting people. Whenever I'm asking that question, I have to say this. Billy Graham used this phrase, and that's where I got it from. My job is to preach the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict. And it's God, the Father's responsibility to judge. I will do my thing. I will pray for the Holy Spirit to do his or her thing. And I will leave it to God to make the final judgments. As I said this morning, on the judgment seat, he won't ask me theological questions. He will ask me, did I feed the hungry? Did I clothe the naked? Did I take care of the sick? Did I visit the people in prison? There are the questions. When Jesus speaks of hell, and he does just once, really, it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember this story? The rich man fares sumptuously every day. The poor man is at his gates, sick, needy. And the rich man gives him nothing. And he would love to have the scraps that fall from the rich man's table. And they both die. And Jesus in this story says, the poor man goes to the bosom of Abraham to live in heaven forever. The poor man goes to heaven. The rich man goes to where the flames are torturing him. Now, I don't know how literally we're to take that story. But one has to ask the question, what was the sin of the rich man that got him into that mess? Was he a liar? Was he a blasphemer? Did he rape? Did he murder? Did he blaspheme? What did he do that warranted this mess that he's in? And the answer was simple. He lived an affluent life and ignored the suffering of the poor people that were at his gate. So instead of examining my son's theology, I want to know how he's treating the poor people and the needy people that are at his gate. And for that matter, I'll ask you the same question, which is a good place to end. I'm sure you're theologically orthodox. But how do you treat the poor man, the poor woman, the needy person in Haiti, in the slums of Nashville, in the government housing projects, 
How do you deal with the needy people out there who would love to have the leftovers when you finish eating? Because Jesus tells a pretty powerful story. And when I look at my son, I ask that question. I am an evangelist. I want to talk about Jesus and what he did on the cross. This morning when I spoke, I, I tried not just to talk about love, but I tried to talk about the cross and what happened on Calvary's cross. I want to talk about Jesus and his salvation. I'm an evangelist. But I do have to say, I, that's all I am. I'm a witness to Christ. And I leave it to the Holy Spirit to bring people under conviction and God to make judgments. And I think too many of us as evangelicals are ready to make judgments and say who's in and who's out, who are saved and who are lost. You do not have that prerogative. Witness for Christ. Talk about his love for you and for them and what he did on Calvary's cross. And after you've finished witnessing, let the Holy Spirit take over. That's a good place to end this thing, isn't it? Peggy, do you want to say some closing words? I'd just like to add to what you said about the poor to include, as the Bible does, the poor and the oppressed and the people that I've tried to stand with and speak for for a long, long time are oppressed in lots of places. The laws aren't fair, but that they would ever be oppressed in the house of God or a Christian place shouldn't happen. So I would add that to what you said. And thank you for being patient. This is not our thing. We did our best. If you would like to support a child in a third world country, I would be thrilled if you gave me your name and address on a slip of paper, and I'll write to you, and you can end up supporting a child through Compassion International. It'll cost you a dollar and a quarter a day, and it'll change the kid's life. So give me your name and address. And the other thing is, there's a book table over there, and I don't get any of the profit from those books. Peggy would love to do that. It all goes to our missionary work. So buy a book and help missions. Thank you for having us. For, for those who like me, they are really appreciative of you right now. For those who don't like me, they'd like to get their hands on you because you've ruined me, obviously. <laughs> because so much of what you said, I forgot how much you had impacted me. Thank you in front of all these folk. One more time for the Compolos. <clears throat> and Please also greet one another. Be good to one another. We have guests here tonight. Thank you for coming. See the home folk back next week. And visitors, would love to have you back. God bless you. You're dismissed. Rise, the sun.